G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Peter Crone is known as the Mind Architect. His previous career included traveling the world with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as their personal trainer. He's also an Ayurvedic practitioner, so his holistic health philosophies are extremely well supported. Pete works with everyone from world-class athletes such as NBA stars, pro baseballers and golfers and elite business owners and leaders. He works with famous actors and actresses like Gwyneth Paltrow and he also works with stay-at-home parents, all in the act to redesign the subconscious mind. Pete says, we exist within limiting mental constructs that dictate our thoughts, feelings, actions and the results we experience. He helps people and groups step outside of the world as they know it by identifying mental constructs that have been holding them back. His work explores the fundamental issues that affect us all to foster a deeper understanding of our common humanity. Pete is a writer, speaker, and a thought leader in human awakening and potential. And the Financial Times were quoted saying, meeting Peter Crone is like meeting Buddha, Einstein, and Austin Powers all at the same time. And after working with Pete, Gwyneth Paltrow said, the fact that Peter calls himself a mind architect is appropriate because he can articulate in such a simple, powerful and direct way a blueprint to build the framework for joy and access tools to help unbridle your potential. In this episode, we discuss how Pete became known as the mind architect, what his relationship was like with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, an intuitive glimpse of his future that he's never shared before, how we're all prisoners of our own mind, our own perspective, if we don't do the work to reframe our perspectives. We talk about the importance of shifting our mindsets from growth to expansion, how to detach yourself from your identity as what you do when you do the work to live as who you truly are. The correlation of the transition from elite sport for elite athletes, uh, business, or when your children leave the nest as, as a parent, and how to navigate this in an aligned and empowering way. We talk about how your environment is either supporting you or significantly hindering your ability to live your best life, what Pete believes are the greatest concerns and also the greatest gifts that come with the government mandates, the tyranny and the power-driven mistakes that we're experiencing in the world at the moment, uh, particularly in Australia. And we talk plenty more, uh, we have plenty more great discussions that prove to us that abundance, love and freedom are always an inside job. So I've been learning from Pete for over a year now and when you really understand his depth of work, the profound transformation that's available is mind-blowing. If you enjoy this episode or any others on this show, please remember to jump onto the podcast app and give the show a five-star rating and review. It truly helps me serve you guys better and consistently allows me to live in alignment with my values and philosophies and bring on amazing guests like this. Okay, 
Now let's hear from the legend himself, Peter Crone. Pete, I'm going to give you a very Australian welcome. G'day, mate. How the bloody hell are you? <laughs> G'day, son. Good to see you. Throw <laughs> shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> That's right. I just realised that you lived a couple of years in Australia, so you would know the the lingo and the slang. Yeah, and I think even before getting there, you know, being part of uh, the British community, like it's uh, it's easy to to put in the old Aussie accent, you know. So, but having lived there for a couple of years, I got some really dear friends that I made, and I, I loved it. It was uh, at the time, it was a beautiful country. <laughs> to be in yeah uh, we might not we might not get into that right now yeah we're just speaking about <laughs> it off air it's a very different place at the moment but you're known as the mind architect and yeah. known globally as the mind architect working with elite athletes and uh, business owners people of all walks of life what does the mind architect mean to you and where did it come from um it was sort of the necessity being the the what is it the mother of invention like it was getting to the point where i'd been called a spiritual teacher a happiness guru um i never liked the term life coach and so i wanted to create something that inspired curiosity so when you when i started saying i'm a, the mind architect it wasn't even me saying it but people would refer to me that way people would naturally become inquisitive they're like oh that's cool what's that right so any of these other monikers tend to be contaminated, right? You hear someone's a spiritual teacher, it's it's sort of got this implied meaning. You know, you think of someone maybe with robes and they're burning sage and, you know, they're probably sleeping with their community, <laughs> whatever it is. Like, so for me, I, I wanted there to be something that had a sense of newness about it. So that was the first reason why I came up with it. And what it means to me really is, you know, I, I always loved architecture. And I feel it speaks to the integrity of structures. Um, and so for me, I'm really looking at the integrity of someone's persona. So I'm sort of doing tenant improvements, but just within somebody's, you know, skull, right? So it, it just it just spoke to me when I when the idea came to me. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I'm reorchestrating the fundamental um, components of somebody's mind. So it was mind architecture. And we're going to dive a lot into that, but your background was more in physical training and physical coaching, wasn't it? So you were doing personal yeah. training and uh, traveling the world with some celebrities and more in that yeah. space before moving into this. Yeah, that was my sort of, I could say my, you know, my first main career after I came out of uh, college. I, I had a little uh, sort of exploration there for a couple of years, making a low budget movie with some guys in LA, which was fun. Uh, but didn't amount to anything that I could retire on. So I then had, um, you know, the 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 usual track was to find myself some sort of st stable income. And I got this job as a trainer, uh, which was for a 24, five-year-old was an amazing opportunity. Um, so even there, I was doing sort of transformational work, right? It was just like tweaking somebody's physicality. And then I realized that that takes a while. Like this is this stuff is dense, you know, but I was having conversations with people and I realized I had this sort of superpower of listening and I could hear where people were using language in a way that was disempowering or was sustaining these inadequacies. And so I started to ask them to question what they were saying. And they're like, oh yeah, I hadn't looked at it like that. And then that was an instantaneous shift. So, so the, the physical transformation was fun, but it was uh, very, 
um, it, relative to the power of shifting somebody's perspective and mindset, you know, it, it was, it just took a long time and I, it's still a big part of my life. I still do a lot of training for myself, but yeah, recognizing changing someone's mind and their perception was instantaneous and really profound. And the ripple effect, I guess, too, really resonates with your values and your philosophy. I come from a similar background, having worked in high-performance sport my whole career as a coach and a hands-on performance therapist, and then moving now into similar kind of work and coaching with a lot of people globally and, and doing the mindset work and breath work and emotional intelligence. My, I'm curious to know, so the, the, the celebrities that you traveled with for a while was uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Did you start to have these kind of conversations with them? Were they sort of people that you could architecturally uh, dive into their mind as well? A little bit. Um, more so with Nicole. She was like, you know, she was like a sister and we would have very kind of profound conversations, very philosophical, uh, which I loved, you know. So in ways that I didn't perhaps at the time fully recognize, I was starting to lay a foundation for what was to come with my work, you know, and she she was very sharp. And um, Tom, I loved, you know, I loved them both. And Tom and I were much more sort of like bros, you know, like we would love to work out and compete and play sports and just, you know, whereas Nicole was a little bit more sort of sapio, you know, sort of there was that in intrigue and like curiosity about the big questions of life. Um so there was a component, but it wasn't it wasn't my job title, you know, it wasn't what I did with them. Like it was sort of just like you'd get together with a friend and have these sort of slightly more esoteric conversations. So mm. so I did, but not in a way that was, you know, curated to help them specifically. Sure. Makes sense. So back to the mind architect piece then. I've heard you say the only prison someone lives in is the prison of their own mind the prison of their own perspective, their own point of view. Please elaborate on yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, how can I put this? Like, you can only see what you can see, right? Like, so uh, without making it too blatantly obvious, it's just that the way that people look at life, they think they see life, but they're actually seeing their view of life, right? So let's take, you know, somebody in your family, like somebody has a particular relationship to an in-law, you know, like mum-in-laws always get the, the brunt end of the stick, right? Like, you know, and so their view of that person, whoever it is, they think that's how the person is, but it's not. That's how you view them, right? And so somebody else who knows the same person is going to have a different view. There may be some overlapping qualities that you both can, you know, agree upon, but fundamentally what we see in the world and most importantly, what we see being possible is given directly by our view. And so this is why it's so profound to recognize that perspective truly is reality. And when you really see that what we think is possible is not what's possible. Now, if you really get that, even some of my clients who are like brilliant and, and high IQs and have traveled the world, like, and so we could argue that they have a much vaster perspective than a lot of people who've maybe stayed in the same town and haven't done too much studying, yet their view is still limited by their view. There's outside of that, there's this whole other realm of, you know, opportunities and experiences that most people don't like account for. 
And so my my work is truly about expanding somebody's view so that it literally becomes in the in the realm of physics, there's more space. With more space, there's more possibility. So um, that's why most people are in prisons, but they're it's the most insidious prison because they don't know they're in a prison. They just think it's the way it is. <laughs> How would they become aware that that's not serving them, that it's hindering them and not helping them? What's the kind of telltale signs that we're imprisoned by these perspectives? Yeah. It's a good question. Really, as a human being, we're, we're designed to get triggered when we come up against constraints. So they would find out by where do they get upset? Where do they feel stressed? Where do they get anxious? Where do they get depressed? So anything that feels like an anomaly to a sense of joy and freedom where we're basically perceiving a problem. So wherever there's some sort of emotional trigger, that's the access to finding out some form of deeper constraint. Now, of course, most people don't look at it that way. Most people get triggered and then they try to avoid it. They placate it. They numb it. You know, smoking, nicotine, marijuana, drugs, you know, alcohol, like food. Food is a big go-to, right, when people are feeling confronted. So, but that's actually the gold. The gold is like, oh, wow, that person, this situation, that event triggered me. I got upset. So for me, that's, okay, let's find out why you got upset. Because what it's actually saying is your persona currently is designed in a way that you believe you're not going to be okay given what just happened. And that's the lie. It may not be a personal preference. You might not want it that way. It may not be a subjective desire, but it's not something that warrants you getting upset other than a deeper fear or a perceived threat that is being triggered. And so my work is helping people transcend those deeper fears and perceived threats so that then going back to what I said earlier, they have an expanded view of what's available and they become a bigger human being in their capacity to be with whatever unfolds. Does most of it come from wiring from earlier experiences and early trauma or early uh, adversities or is it a combination of that with current life circumstances what what's your most common um finding with human beings in that way um i mean it's all of it like you know there's this illusion of time right past present and future but we're always where we are so it's you know you use the word wiring to me it's sort of it's conditioning right like it's like a habit so it gets a little deeper because it's not so much of what happened in childhood or what mom did or dad said or whatever is what caused the constraint or limitation or feeling of inadequacy or insecurity, but rather my assertion is those events were the catalyst to turn on the constraint that you already had when you arrived, right? So if we look at epigenetics, which I'm going to guess you're familiar with, if not, you know, it's it's basically speaking, epi means above. So it's the genetics above our actual genome. So it really is speaking to diet and lifestyle and mindset, right? So how we have a particular sort of code, our DNA, but depending on how, depending on the interaction that code has with its environment, it will turn on and off certain proteins that will then, you know, give rise to and reflect in the way that we present, right? And in, in behaviors and potential diseases. And so this is now why they're recognizing that really the biggest catalyst for sickness is not so much your genetic makeup, but you know, whether it's 98, 97%, whatever, is to do really with your diet, lifestyle, and mindset. So 
Epigenetics is really a huge science now, which is recognizing the importance of having an environment that, you know, for sake of a better term, cherry picks the better expression of your DNA, right? So likewise with the mind, for me, we arrive with our perceived limitations, constraints, inadequacies, insecurities, a sense of scarcity, and then there'll be external catalysts, yes, during childhood, that then turn that protein, or in this case, that perception on, and then that starts to formulate the, the foundation of our persona. So that somebody who grows up in a household where perhaps the expression of money doesn't grow on trees, or there was a feeling of scarcity, and mum and dad were always talking about, no, you can't have that, we can't afford it. And then you were perhaps in an environment where your friends did get big toys, nice bikes, whatever. So that person is going to develop a very different relationship to finance, money and worth than somebody who is just given whatever they want, right? And I'm not saying that either is one is better than the other. It's just you start to recognize the physics of, oh, yeah, that person developed a sense of scarcity because that's what they were taught. So that now they're 30, 40, and perhaps they are like going for a new job and they're willing to take the lower income because that's all they think they're worth. When in fact, part of them is like, no, I would like to take a job with more money, but they there's this sort of invisible ceiling that they can't get beyond, right? So, so anyway, so to answer your question long-windedly, but like, it, yes, it does occur in childhood, but not in the way that I would assert most people think it does, which is it's mum's fault, it's dad's fault. No, they're just characters in the play of your own evolution within which you arrive with these constraints that you're here, as far as I'm concerned, to actually transcend as part of the arc of your journey. So you mentioned their environment, and yeah. I think environment is a really key factor that people are probably aware of. So, so you might do some mind architect work with Peter Crone and do your online programs, for example, and, and have this transformation. And then the environment that you put yourself back into is vitally important to be able to play out what you have learned. Because yeah. I did some work in a uh, juvenile detention center with young people and crimes and they were, you know, juvenile. So they weren't in prison and went in there to do some of this kind of work. And I was stunned to find out that the repeat offended uh, percentage is 97%. So they might be in there yeah. for a year or two years and then they're released. 97% of them come back in or go into prison. And when yeah. we looked at that, it was because most of them were going back to the same environment that they were in when they made the choices to make the crimes. That yeah. And so that environment was the, the catalyst because those people in the environment didn't change. By the time these kids got out of juvenile detention, they were much more skilled and emotionally intelligent uh, than the environment they were going back into. But for 97% yeah. of them, it wasn't enough. They were triggered straight back into. So there's those kind of environments. And I often say to people, you know, what, what's the environment you're putting yourself back into that's making you re-offend? And that re-offense yeah. could be with an addiction to porn or gambling or drugs, that re-offense yeah. could be to the negative behavior, that re-offense could be to the fears that are your constraints, like what you said. And also, I think, you know, what's pretty obvious too is environment is people watching the news, for example, or surrounding themselves yeah. with uh, different environments in that way. So, when I hear you say environment for that piece, 
for everyone listening, what, what's your advice there if, you, if they're on the journey and doing some work and, um, you know, exploring and self-discovering, maybe doing your programs or something like that? How do they ensure that they can live this work out when they've uh, sort of had this paradigm shift? No, it's a great, it's a great point. And I think, you know, people don't understand the significance of how their surroundings are impacting their behavior, right? So for me, when I work with somebody, it's very key to let them understand that as they become a new person, which they literally are becoming a different version of themselves, that they adjust their environment as we go to mirror the new version of themselves precisely for the reason that you just articulated, which is, you know, I can remember a woman flew all the way from England to work with me for three months. And, you know, there's a lot we can do in three months, right? Like I can have an hour session with someone and sort of blow their mind, but it's usually going to be short-lived because it's an hour relative to however many years they've been alive, 30, 40 years. But three months, you know, for sure, like she literally was a different woman. And she went home and the first thing, you know, first time she called me was within about 24 hours. And she said, I literally don't recognize my house. Brilliant. That means the job's done. (laughs) Yeah. Now, of course, she recognizes, she knew where she lived, but she was making a point, which is the energy, the presentation, the design, the layout of the space that she was in as she returned albeit a direct reflection of who she'd been, was no longer in keeping with the way that she now sees the world, right? You know, and a very, what does that mean? It all sounds very poetic. Like what's a very like sort of, you know, quote unquote, real life example. She might have opened the doors to her pantry and seen, you know, sugar covered cereals and chocolate biscuits. And I I don't know, but now coming back as someone who has a whole different relationship to vitality, self-worth, reverence of her body, you know, that person would see things that were organic fruit and veg and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, so it is, it's pivotal. It's if it's to be sustained and this day and age, you know, you look at the world of plant medicine, which has become very on vogue and everyone's always doing these journeys. And it's like, oh, you know, it's like every weekend, someone seems to be doing ayahuasca or something. And it's, I'm not denying it's, you know, it's profundity and the difference it can make for people, but the same issue, as far as I'm concerned, tends to be, you know, truly exacerbated in that industry, which is people have profound experiences and then they re-engage and immerse, immerse themselves in the environment prior to the ceremony. And then all it was was a great experience, you know. So it takes something. It really takes effort, you know, for this somewhat fragile version of you that's just been born. You think of any, any organism that's born, especially a mammal, it's fragile, right? To begin with, like you look at a baby, like you said, you've just had another baby or you've got a couple of kids. So, you know, that, that, that being, albeit heartbeat, sentience, you know, like a miracle that doesn't know how to like, you know, go and like hunt for food or pay bills or, you know, turn the lights on or drive a car. Like there's, it's very vulnerable, right? So, That's why community is very important too, because even though I might be working with a 40, 50-year-old executive who commands millions of dollars, what I've just shown them is a vulnerable expression of a new version of them as a possibility. So yet they've got four or five decades of 
sort of reinforcing an older iteration of who they are, which is very easy and, uh, dare I say, comforting to fall back into, right? It's, it's the familiarity that can be so tempting and people's downfall versus knowing, wait a minute, this feels amazing to get beyond my feeling that I'm not enough or I'm a failure, which has really, you know, sort of been destructive in my life. But it's so new and it's so fresh and it doesn't have a, a great deal of gravity yet. So I need to be that much more discerning and dedicated and get support to pull me further into that view of myself such that in a week, in a month, in five months, now it's become stabilized. And I don't think people in the coaching world or in any of these sort of transitional, transformational spaces really give enough credence to the importance of that. Is that along the lines of being wary of growth? So I work a lot with business owners, business leaders, and elite athletes, and growth is important because, mm-hmm. you know, growth in, in the business and earning more money or winning more contracts or growth in for elite athletes as as their uh, their skill sets and learning, growing, developing in their sport to to maintain contracts and be the best athletes that they can be. How do we ensure that with that growth, it's done in an aligned way that it doesn't create as an identity where their self worth is wrapped up in that growth and that end result? And so, you know, for a transition of elite athletes, are working with some in transition where they might take that identity of that um, successful athlete with them and then lose all their self-worth when that's taken away or a business owner that it's time to transition out and then all of a sudden that's gone or if they don't hit their KPIs or their goals in a financial year and that identity might be wrapped up in it. Yeah, it's a big issue, especially, you know, I mean, in all arenas, but definitely with some pro athletes that I've worked with where they get all of this accolades uh, combined with wealth and attention and confidence, and then all of a sudden say they retire, right? Which is, I think, what you're speaking to. So, um, yeah, it's, (laughs) and the same thing happens at home, right? Like whether it's a mom or a dad, but oftentimes it seems to be more the mother where when the kids leave the nest, her role, because let's face it, mums do, you know, 95% of the work in the household. And certainly as it relates to uh, parenting, um, no, no slight on dads. I know there's a lot of dads, you know, and you, you, I'm sure you're one of them, but you know, who chip in and do their part, but, but for the sake of a generalization, everyone gets my point that when the kids lose, uh, leave the nest, there's a void, right? And so the feeling of contribution of being of service of having a role, uh, suddenly becomes compromised, and then there can be a lot of you know sadness, depression, or self doubt that creeps in. So it's it's prevalent in all arenas of life where there is some sort of transition. Um, for me, it's about recognizing the difference between who I am versus what I do, <laughs> and people tend to collapse the two, right? Like, so I am a pro athlete, um, or I am a mother. You know, and as long as we become misidentified with the role that we play versus recognizing who I am is where the value is, not in what I do. I bring value to what I do, but it's not because of what I do that I have value, 
right? And that's a very powerful but subtle distinction, right? What I do is just what I do. The fact that I'm caring, loving, diligent, you know, that's what I bring to the role. But I could equally go out there from being a pro athlete and become a speaker or a TV presenter, a high school coach, you know, like and bring the same degree of dedication, professionalism, passion to that. So I, I think people misunderstand that we bring the essence and the vibration of ourselves to a particular profession or a craft or a vocation versus that's what gives us that sense of meaning or significance or value. And, and once people get their heads around that, it's like, oh, wow, I could go and work at a gas station and you know earn minimum wage and still be the most passionate person anyone's ever met. <laughs> I, my, one of my first jobs was as a toilet cleaner. And I used to say to myself before I knew any of this kind of stuff was I'm the best bloody toilet cleaner there is in this town. <laughs> yeah, I was go. a proud Absolutely. toilet cleaner. So what yeah. I'm hearing you say then is also, uh, I'm a massive believer in that, you know, we're human beings and not human doings and knowing who we are. And yeah. with the group programs that I run, we do weekly or fortnightly catch-ups with um, mostly men's groups. And it's not until the last one where I let the guys talk about what they do. For all of it, they're just uh -huh. talking about who they are, their personal philosophy, some of the challenges. We help work each other through it. And then at the end, no. they kind of all understand what each other does as well. Because to me, that's the yeah. least of the important aspects of what, who we are as humans. And I worked in Paralympic sport for a long time. And one of my good mates, Kurt Fernley, is a um, Paralympic champion in multiple disciplines. And he used to say that – oh, sorry, he says – He's confined to a wheelchair. He's a paraplegic. And he used to say, if people think that the way that we get from A to B is the most important thing about us, then they've lost the whole purpose of, you know, this sense of human beingness. So, when they judge people or think, oh, my God, are you okay? And, you know, life must be hard in a wheelchair. He fucking right. loves life and he's thriving. So, I think that right. that whole aspect of who we are and who people with a disability are and who Peter Crone is without everything is yeah. kind of the vital um, aspect that we should be focusing on. Yeah. It's funny. I've, I've had, I get different glimpses of my future as an intuitive here and there and to whatever degree they actually become realized. I don't know, but you know, one that I've never shared before, but I saw myself on a TV show, you know, with a big host and they're like, wow, like, you know, look at, who you are and the difference you've made to millions of people's lives around the world. Like, is it just surreal to see like what your life is like? And I always feel the response is so clear. It's like, no, it's like, I've been this guy forever. <laughs> it's like, you're the ones whose life has changed because you know about me now, <laughs> but I've been, I've been the happy go lucky guy. It's not to say that I didn't have my own versions of adversity, but it's, you, you know, so I love that you recognize that about whether you're a janitor and you're cleaning toilets or whatever you're doing. It's like, that's just who I am, you know? And if you talk to some of my mates from college and even before that, when I was growing up in what we call secondary school, you know, it's, I would like to think that everybody would say Peter Crone was always just a loving, kind, you know, at times maybe quiet or shy when I was young, but just, just a good kid, you know, and he was smart and passionate and talented as an athlete. But like, so I've just taken the same attributes. Obviously, I've got a lot more experience and wisdom along the way, but the fundamental qualities of my being and who I am, it's still the same. 
you know, mm. and I would like to think that whether I make a gazillion dollars in the future or I'm put on the cover of magazines or who, whoever gives a shit about that. But if that happens, I ain't going to change one iota. I'm just going to have maybe a little bit more resources, which for me would be fun to help more people. You know, it's not it's not going to do anything for me as a person. You know, it might change circumstances in a way that's lovely and I could maybe afford something more and bigger homes or whatever, like who cares? Mm. But to me, I think when people can really drill down to what is the most important part of a human being, which to me are your values, right? Like so many people become associated with their value, (laughs) right? As an external reflection of worth. And that's fine. Like have at it, you know, but if you don't have the deep seated fundamental rudimentary values as a human being of kindness, of care, of integrity, of reverence for life, respect, then, yeah, you know, the external stuff to me starts to become like just a facade. So anyway. I'm hearing you. I've always said I'm an optimistic lover of life and I'm addicted to gratitude. Yeah, I love that. And so what I'm hearing you say too is that, you know, you've had your fair share of adversity, so you've experienced that and I'd love to hear what that was. And then you also know that if you continue on this trajectory, you're likely going to have this massive ripple effect where you are, because you're already doing it, impacting, I don't even know the number, but the number is obviously not important, but the ripple effect of the impact you're having is huge. And, you know, if you continue on this trajectory of being who you are, then that ripple effect is going to expand, obviously. So in that vision that you have and on that TV show, when they say that, and you can look back at it and say, well, of course, it's just the byproduct of me living in alignment. So that's how a massive mindset shift for me over time of I always have very limited mindset on on money and success and growth and and impact uh, until realizing that it's all a byproduct of me living in complete alignment with my values and my personal philosophy. And I've done a hell of a lot of work on those, living completely in alignment with that now as you went back to that fatherhood aspect. I'm a 95% father at the moment and 5% you know, podcasting coach because I've chosen right. to be that that version to, to because two words that I had when my kids were born were present and involved. And right. uh, and and also my gorgeous wife is a performance coach, and my part of my support for her as an empathetic connected husband is to ensure that she is fulfilling her potential as well. So me taking the kids for a lot of time allows her to do that and vice versa because we both love being parents, but we're both very open to say that's not our purpose. We absolutely right. love it, but it's not our sole purpose. We have multiple, yeah. you know, multiple passions and purposes in life. So from adversity to where you are now to knowing that on this trajectory, the ripple effect will continually expand. How do you measure success and is it important? Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I just want to acknowledge you for, you know, being what I'd like to consider the reflection of, of, I don't even want to say future man, but you know, what's possible for a man as a, both as a husband, a father, but also as a businessman or an entrepreneur. And it's uh you know, why I was drawn to you energetically is happy to do this podcast. I could see there's, you know, without fluffing you too much, there's just a good dude there who's like making a difference, whether it be in your little micro circle of your own family, supporting your wife, but then obviously uh, affording someone like myself the opportunity to share and hopefully reach other people. So, so, so just kudos to you, my friend, hopefully, and I'm sure many people do, you know, learn from your example. Thank you. Um, 
with regards to adversity to where I'm at and the conversation about success, it's a good one and I certainly love it. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I have my hard knocks. I'm not a woe is me kind of guy. Uh, everybody goes through their stuff. Uh, it's just part of the uh, human journey. It's sort of unavoidable. And um, uh, often at a young age is probably the most significant part of those trials and tribulations. Mum died when I was seven. Dad died when I was 17 in a freak accident, went to work one day, never came back. Um, and so that was very jarring, especially having, you know, 10 years previous, my mum left us. So um, that in ways that I don't think I fully appreciated at the time really taught me many lessons that have, I would say, contributed to my ability to be very uh, compassionate, very patient, uh, very empathetic, and sympathetic to human suffering. Uh, because I feel what if there was one huge takeaway is that fundamentally, as human beings, we are trapped in the illusion of separation. And I got the visceral experience of being alone, right? So separation and being alone sort of being synonymous, right? Where I was alone, um, but most people experience being alone, even if they're married or they have an extended family or a huge, you know, list of siblings or whatever it is, the by virtue of the fact that we look through a piece of equipment called us, like the me that we think we are, a mind and a body unit, it tends to give rise to the experience of separation. There's me and then there's the rest of the big bad world out there. And that as long as we look through that lens, then the, the primary form of relating is survival, right? So if there's a me and then there's everything else, I have to do whatever I think I have to do to make it in life. And that generates a massive amount of pressure and expectation and then all of the woes, disappointments, failures, and all of that. So, so yes, I had a lot of adversity, but I think it was a gift at the time. Obviously, it was very difficult, and I'm not you know, wishing that upon anyone to be 17 and not have any parents. Uh, I didn't have any siblings. So it was a very unique experience, but one that I think served me well over time to as many of my clients would say, you know, you're the most kind, patient, compassionate person I've ever been with. And I feel I can tell you anything. And I think a lot of that capacity to hold space for people is because of what I went through. So, you know, anything that anyone goes through, I'm always going to assert is for their growth to go back to what we were talking about earlier about expansion and growth. It's just to what degree do we recognize that versus are we victims of it? Or do we feel like it's in it's an injustice and we are constantly looking over our shoulder, like, woe is me, like that doesn't do anyone any good. Um, so I've really integrated my experiences, you know, at least those that I'm aware of. I'm not saying that there aren't some tucked away in some deep corner, you know, that was a trauma that maybe I didn't get to look at, but I'm, I'm pretty thorough in my investigation. I think I've gone under pretty much every rock. Um, so that to me really to come back to your question is, is synonymous with success, right? We, we have, as a society, generated a view of success. Um, it's the, you know, the quintessential is like the huge home, the Ferrari, the big diamonds, you know, all of this crap, right? Which, you know, crap is a harsh word. It's fun stuff. I don't want to in any way, you know, negate the joy of accomplishment and buying things. That's fun. But it's a... To me, it's a misinformed view of success. And it's one that unfortunately leaves people feeling incredibly deflated and unfulfilled because it's like chasing the horizon, right? So meaning 
that that illusion of this sort of proverbial carrot that I'm going to be happy when, and in this case, it invariably tends to be associated with this agreed upon view of success. There's no actual, if you really break it down, there's no actual thing of success. It's just something that as a society we've agreed upon, right? And then you're always going to fall short because the agreed upon is sort of the quintessential idealized version. And then you can always through comparison, find a feeling of inadequacy, right? Like even my wealthiest of clients, and I've had the pleasure of working with multiple billionaires, you know, but I would not call them successful through the lens through which I'm mm. equating success, right? They're successful materially, but why do they want to spend time with or be inspired by Peter Crone is because they still struggle with depression or they, you know, they've had miserable divorces and they can't find true love or their kids are addicted to something and they don't talk to them or, you know, they have all sorts of dramas in the workplace. You know, that to me is not a successful human being. That's a human being who's got a ton of cash who's very, very ordinary (laughs) in the way that they're just trying to survive like anybody else. So, so really success for me warrants an update, an upgrade in the way that we define it. And in a very simple term, I'd say true success to me is complete inner peace. Mm. Um, and that's not a way that people look at success, but inner peace is a byproduct of doing the work, which is what I alluded to earlier. The fact that I feel I've turned over every stone that at least I'm aware of to discover where I might've have some sort of feeling of limitation or constraint, see it for what it is, which is it's a piece of programming. It's not a truth. And then transcend that to discover freedom. So freedom and peace to me is synonymous. And I think that's why my work has resonated with just so many people around the world is I'm not the guy telling them what to do to go out there and become more successful. I'm I'm holding a space of love uh, so that they can reconcile the things they've been carrying for way too long, put them down, and maybe in ways that they never knew was even possible, experience a sense of liberation that to them is the most successful thing they've ever accomplished. So that's the way I would delineate success, my friend. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry to hear about your your parents, even though you've done the work and no stone has been unturned. And the video I sent you 12 months ago from the skis in Sweden was me sharing my adversity that uh, led me on this journey where my grandparents, who were my best friends and my idols, that they were murdered by their own son in their own home and shifted right. my trajectory and my perspective of the world significantly. And you know, allowed yeah. me to anchor into um, different purposeful uh, directions, which is I'm, I'm abundantly grateful for, uh, not for what happened, but for how I'm able to to change the meaning of that and and impact other people's lives from yeah. that. So yeah. I'm, I hear where you're, you're coming from with that. And what I'm hearing you talk about with that success aspect for you personally, and hoping that this resonates with people who are chasing success that are listening to this right now, is that if that TV show didn't happen and people didn't say that you had done all of this, made all of this impact in three, five years, 10 years time, because, you know, just hypothetically, it was all taken away from you. What I'm hearing is that your inner peace is that if you couldn't do this work any longer, for whatever reason, there's some pretty weird shit happening in the world. So who knows? If you couldn't do this work and continue with that ripple effect and this opportunity was taken away from you, you're at peace with yourself because you know who you are regardless of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's my experience of life, like I want to be accurate in the way that I phrase this, 
my experience of life is not because of what's happening, but because of who I am in the face of what's happening. And so when people really get that, it's a generative experience, not a reactive one. And so I bring joy, freedom, love, peace to what I'm doing versus doing something in, in hope that mm. I will experience those things. So you're That's telling me that's a vastly that different world, vastly different. Even though with a global pandemic or a relationship breakup or losing your parents, for example, you can obviously there's grief and things that human beings need to go through. But if you come from the space of those yeah. virtues, those values of the freedom, the peace, the kindness, the connectedness, the consciousness, the way that those experiences impact you you're still carrying that version of you with you through that. You're not hoping that to get on the other side and then you're hoping that it's still going to be there or you're hoping that you can somehow find that. Correct. Yeah, so even in the, you know, school of hard knocks that we will go through, there are going to be times, you know, listen, when we get older, we become a little bit more, I don't want to say resigned, but we've been through plenty of stuff. We're not as fragile as a kid, you know. So the seven-year-old version of me whose mum dies that was off the spectrum of processing, right? Like, so it wasn't even that I was sad. I, you know, what does a seven-year-old do with that information? You know, like, I don't think I even knew how to comprehend what that really means. Conversely, you know, now I've experienced a lot of what we could call loss. I don't, I don't call it loss. It's just the changing of form. But um, so I'm, super at peace with the fact that things come and go all the time, <laughs> mm. you know, whether it be a person or money or possessions or looks or, you know, it, 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 that's the nature of life. And so there's an, a massive amount of peace for me in the fact that I understand the physics of form and the manifest world, which is in constant flux, right? So, but to, to, to your question, yeah, even in the face of adversity, there is, there's a deep-seated trust that even if subjectively this isn't necessarily what Peter Crone would personally like to be happening, like the state of affairs in the world right now and everything that I see that's going on, there's a more profound sense of acceptance with, it's not acceptance that's passive, but rather acceptance that's dynamic. So it's with a commitment to something. Right. So a lot of people see what's happening, whether it's in the world or governments or tyranny, or they might see it in their own workplace or in their own family. And there's resistance to it. Right. They're, this is bullshit. I don't like this. And now they're in a state of war. And that's discomforting and it creates disease in their body and their mind and eventually becomes destructive versus, well, okay, this is the way it is. I don't like it. I don't want it. It's not a personal preference. And I see the possibility for something far greater. So I'm going to commit to that. And so really that's what my work is, is that even in the face of adversity to maintain centeredness, to recognize that I'm not the center of universe, meaning I don't get to say how everything goes. A lot of people think they should, you know, the ego of, well, you shouldn't have done that. It's like, well, I didn't know that you were like in command of how every other human being should act. You know, there's a certain degree of audacity in that perspective that I'm not willing to take on. So there's a humility in the way that I approach things, which is, listen, this dimension of planet Earth and being human is, it's, it's pretty insane right now. You know, there's just not a lot of intelligence. And 
And I could sit here and waffle all day about what I think is wrong and who should do this and who should get out of that and get people out of positions of power. And, and okay, it might reach somebody who does have impact, but, but otherwise I'm just saying a bunch of shit. You know, it's just hot air. So I'd much rather focus on where I have impact, which in this case is, you know, having a conversation with you, it reaches some people, maybe, you know, hopefully they come off of this and they're like, wow, I didn't, you know, realize I was doing that. Or maybe they're going to be more kind, compassionate, even if it's just themselves. That's making a difference, you know? So I think it's like, you know, pick, picking your arenas where you can actually have some clout and say, and for the rest, it's having a profound sense of acceptance so you don't disturb your inner peace. And wherever you can have uh, some impact, then yeah, be committed to that. So, you know, I, uh, one of my quotes, I say, we're all masterpieces, but works in progress, you know, and the same is true of life, which is there's a, there's a beauty and a mystery to this planet that is just phenomenal. And we got a shit ton of improvement to do, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So as a species, we're pretty young, we're pretty infantile. And through the lens of an advanced civilization, we're, 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 we're not doing a very good job, you know? So, <laughs> so we got a lot of opportunity for growth. So I, I apply the same principles to myself and, and, and kind and gentle and patient with myself. I think I've done a ton of work and clearly I'm flattered that so many people come to find uh, me for, you know, counsel and reassurance. And I do whatever I can to be the pioneer and the leader to help them step into a better iteration of themselves. And hopefully collectively we, we, we can do the same because um, mm. we sure have a ton of potential that right now we are obliterating. <laughs> I'm hearing you. And it's beautiful to hear you say that you found, you know, your space because same sort of thing. I have very similar to beliefs to you of what's going on in the world at the moment. And I had to do a lot of quietness, to be honest, to find within me what resonates, what, sorry, is real for me of how to move through this time and mm -hmm. what I voice, what I don't, and how I do it. And it came back to continually doing what I'm doing and holding space for other people who are challenged more perplexly, perplexly by this, who might not have the skills yeah. to deal with it. So coming back to that and, and allowing, knowing that ripple effect that can be when there's more conscious people in the world who are more connected to what's happening, that's the ripple effect that I believe we need within that. And Pete, there's a lot of people that would be listening to this podcast that wouldn't have that wouldn't know who you are. There's a lot of people that would, but there's also a lot of probably Aussie people that are thinking, who is this Peter Crone fella? So for those yeah. who have been following you on social media, you know, we've seen some of the stuff you've shared and um, people will resonate with your beliefs or they won't. And, you know, that's not why you share what you share. It's not to to gain attraction. It's to for the belief that you believe. Two just sort of quick questions on everything that's happening. What do you believe is the greatest, what's your greatest concern about what's happening at the moment? And what's the greatest gift that's available with what's happening at the moment. And what I mean by what's happening is, I don't know, the the fear-driven propaganda, tyranny, push, uh, and f essentially a lot of freedoms being taken away and um, power-driven from the top. So what's what do you believe is the, the greatest concern and what's the greatest gift amongst all of this? Um, I mean, I'll sort of paraphrase uh, this rabbi that I heard the other day on a video someone sent to me. He said, the concern isn't that the government is corrupt and evil and telling us lies. He's like, everyone's known that for decades. <laughs> he said the concern is that people, in his term, are stupid enough to comply, right? Now, I'd remove stupid. It's a strong judgment. But I would say my concern is the readiness 
with which people acquiesce, <laughs> you know, that they just fall in line and do as they're told, which really to me is a reflection of sort of a traumatized kid in most people that is wanting to be a good boy or a good girl and do as they're told. So that I would say is the concern is, look, there's corruption all over the place. Like at one level, you know, we could say this has been there for centuries. Like as long as humans are involved, there's going to be some manipulation, domination, greed, all of the, you know, the deadly sins or whatever have been there for a long time. Um, so that, that I'd say is a concern is that people are acquiescing way too easily and uh, relinquishing their freedoms and not honoring their own bodies, you know, and just trusting these criminal companies who've got like absolutely massive criminal records for basically killing people, you know, in the millions uh, with their products. So that's a big red flag. The opportunity uh, is the flip side of that, <laughs> right? Which is to wake up and go, hang on a minute, like so much of what has been going on behind the scenes is actually coming to the forefront. I think the whole conversation about vaccines, for example, you know, of which this is not one, right? This is not a vaccine in the traditional sense. This is an experimental drug. Um, and yeah, it's opened a lot of parents' eyes to the damage, the trauma, the injuries that are like replete around the world in the millions to children with other procedures. Uh, you know, I think now in America, there's something like 72 shots that are on the schedule for a kid. I mean, it's insane. So I think- For the other vaccines, those, you mean? Yes, you know, mm. for God knows whatever it is, for the MRM, like the uh, the measles, the mumps, the rubellas, the, you know, all, all of this stuff, right? And yet the people listen to these companies that are making billions of dollars, but they'll shame and belittle the parents who are dealing with the aftermath and the damage, you know? And so I think people are now starting to go, hang on a minute. There's just way too many people's lives being injured, you know, literally or ruined, maybe financially. Um, so I think that's the opportunity is that there's there's a greater sense of responsibility that people are having. There's a greater sense of commitment to true sovereignty and freedom and choice. And I think these are incredibly important values um, and not acquiescing to the powers that be, you know, the 300 pound gorillas, however um, much of a bully they are or whatever propaganda arms they use to, you know, in very strategic psychological ways. I don't know if you know the four steps of mass formation, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this has been very strategically planned to present these different processes and steps to leave people feeling desperate and then, quote, unquote, following the rules of the silver bullet cure-all, which now we're seeing is far from it. It's actually mm. quite the antithesis. It's creating far more problems from deaths to God knows what else, myocarditis to seizures to you know, blood clots and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think that's the opportunity is for people to take a greater sense of responsibility for their wellness. You know, I'm not a poster child, but I don't use any pharma products. And why is that? Because I'm like some golden child? No, I take care of myself, you know, the way that I eat and the way that I exercise and the way that I sleep and all of these very fundamental pillars of vitality that I'm not saying, quote, unquote, are easy, you know, but they're available to everybody, you know, getting outside and moving your body, or even if you can't get outside because you're not allowed because of some 
insane rules, you know, you can do push-ups, you can do sit-ups, you can do sprinting on the spot in your house. You know, that it, it comes back to what we said at the beginning, who are you in the way that you conduct your life versus what are you doing? And so that to me is the opportunity is for us to grow and evolve as a species to see that right now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we're really not that advanced, certainly in terms of emotional intelligence. We harm ourselves with products like nicotine, alcohol, drugs, medications, um, berating of our own internal narratives of you're a loser, you're a failure. This is all self-harm, right? Mm. Uh, we, we hurt each other, you know, hostility, violence, war, the spousal uh, domestic violence, the abuse of children, right? And then we harm our planet with look at all the like, we're just literally raping our oceans of fish. We pour glyphosate all over food. There's some of the same companies that are wanting to apparently heal you are also using carcinogenic products uh, on food. You know, mm. like, I mean, it's completely asinine. Um, so all of that, these industries of government, of uh, education, of agriculture, I think they're due for a huge collapse so that we can start to create something that is sustainable, that is new, that is based on principles of of unity and kindness and, um, you know, harmony, both with ourselves and our, our home, planet Earth. So mm. it's there's, there's a lot to be done, you know, and it's probably not going to be in our lifetime. But that's that's what I would say is the concern uh, is the ignorance and the opportunity is intelligence and awakening. The more I see these uh, this this propaganda and this tyranny come in and all these rules about what people cannot do, I think, wow, there's some great innovation coming. It's sad and it sucks, but there's some really empowering innovation coming on the right side of the equation. I think it's going to get yeah. darker before it gets lighter. And as I've been saying, when when the fear dust settles, sanity will prevail. So I think people yeah. like you and, and the work that you do is vitally important now more than ever. And on that note, as we wrap up, Pete, where can people find you and your details online and follow your work and get immersed in your programs and everything like that? Where's the best place to, to follow you? And then how can we help you on your journey? Thank you, mate. And I appreciate the kind words. I, again, I, I'm, I'm doing what I can, you know, just to help. We Everybody's going to have their views. And even some of the things I just shared may not fully, you know, resonate with some people and that's okay. Um, but I do assert and actually guarantee I'm coming from love and kindness and just doing the best I can to make everyone's lives better and the world a better place. Uh, in terms of finding me, the best place is uh, my my website is just petercrone.com, C-R-O-N-E. And my Instagram is petercroneofficial. They tend to be the two most um, you know, updated in terms of free content and all of that. And courses can be found on my on my website. So yeah, I'd love for people to stop by. There's a ton of free content. And like this beautiful conversation, I've done, I think, 60-something podcasts. So if anyone wants to go down the rabbit hole of stuff, there's there's hours and hours to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to leave with the listeners or anything that you would like to ask me? No, I just, uh, you know, thank you for your gracious uh, hosting and it's been a joy to be with you and I appreciate you reaching out as you did in a way that showed me that you were really moved by my work and wanted to learn more and share my stuff. So that always means the world to me that uh, people are out there who who are inspired by what I say and, and want to help to spread that message. They see a possibility for both themselves and in your case, your listeners. Um, and I would just invite people to you know, to breathe and to 
try and go easy on themselves. And, and the more we can find that feeling of inner peace, like I alluded to earlier and spoke to about success within ourselves, uh, then the sooner we can, you know, translate that into a collective in the world. And uh, again, I write in quotes, I'm doing my first book right now. And one of the other quotes I use is I say, we'll never have world peace as long as people are at war within themselves. And so I would invite people to, you know, do whatever you can to put those demons to rest from your history, stop hating on people, stop making your loved ones, your family wrong and see if you can maybe inject a little bit more love, kindness, and patience with yourself and others. Pete, you're a legend. You walk the talk and you're a prime example that love and freedom and joy is a birthright to all of us and it's always an inside job. Keep shining your impactful light to the world, my man. Thank you for your kind words. Appreciate being with you. And have a bloody good Christmas and New Year's. Yes, you too. Here's to a... uh, slightly more uh, joyous 2022 for all of us <laughs> <laughs> absolutely there you go what a wisdom filled legend as pete said if you were offended by his beliefs about the current climate of the world and the pandemic sagas he only comes from a place of love and He's actually one of the wise people in the world that are helping shine the light on a lot of the grey areas that mainstream media and the governments are hiding. Make sure you follow Pete online at petercrone.com or his Instagram at petercroneofficial or simply Google his name to find thousands of hours of content from him. And if you'd like this episode, sorry, if you did like this episode, please remember to share it with your friends, your family, your community, your network, anyone that you believe will get value from it. And also, please jump on and give the podcast a five-star rating and review to help support me bringing on more empowering guests like Peter Crone. Keep thriving, legends. Have an awesome, awesome break It's leading into the Christmas and New Year's as I record this. Maybe you're already listening to it at the beginning of 2022. But have an awesome break. Regenerate, rejuvenate, reinvigorate and bounce into 2022 more empowered, more connected and more inspired than ever before. Keep thriving and as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact. (laughs) 